This is CX of M Radio, the voice of customer experience professionals. podcast. This is your host, Darren Hood. Thanks, everybody, for taking the time to join us on today, for taking time out of your busy schedule, and a special welcome to those of you who are listening for the first time. Welcome to the podcast. Welcome to the show. Uh, Today, we are going to do another potpourri session, And, and there were certain topics that came up over the last week, and it just struck me that it'd be good to speak to these a little bit more at length. When we're sharing certain things on social media, we're always time boxed. You always have to post things, limiting yourself to a certain number of characters. There are times that you get into a conversation with someone and you're able to elaborate a little bit. You're able to get into the details. You're able to make things a little bit more plain But there's nothing like being able to talk about some of the things that we present on social media without the same time box where I can just take a topic and just run with it. And and that's what we usually do on all the sessions entitled Potpourri. In this UX Potpourri session, however, we're going to do something a little special. And the, the, the subtopic on this one today is the extremely meddlesome episode with another subtopic. Weren't we already doing that? <laughs> so we want to we want to spend some time talking about something that we covered this past week. And it, it comes up from time to time. And I don't believe I've ever dedicated an entire episode to this. But it's 2023. And UX has been in the mainstream since roughly early 2000s. It, it wasn't in the mainstream prior to that, not too much. There were very few companies that were investing. The dot-com bust saw a lot of people right before that rushing to get on the internet, but not really investing. And that's what led to the dot-com bust because people thought they could do what they were doing on the internet without having guidance of someone who was skilled in the sciences that would help ensure their success. That's when the door opened for user experience as a discipline. Back then, it was mostly information architecture. There were some human factors people that were doing UX work. Not all, but some. There were interaction designers, uh, things like that. Don Norman was the first person with the title UX in his job title. But he was it. That was all. There was nobody else out there, not in mass at all. That was doing this work. And then when you got closer to 2000, you had some companies, Amazon was already spending money on it. And that's one of the reasons why they're where they are today. But ever since that time, there's just been such a large volume of challenges. I talk about the siege that took off in about 2011. There's There's been this large volume of activities 
this large volume of brainstorms that really didn't amount to anything. There's been a large amount of people having these digital epiphanies, if you will, and trying to introduce things to the discipline after it's become a, a bit more stabilized and getting its roots in place. Uh, but a lot of people have done things that really threaten that. And one of the things that has threatened the discipline more than anything else is people who take something that already existed, try to rebrand it, present it as if it's something brand new. And it was really the same thing that was being done. And, and there's always people who are not very well-versed in the discipline. They don't have a lot of experience and that, that doesn't demonize them. We're not saying that those are bad people. These are just facts. There was a day when I didn't know anything about UX and I was gullible and I was willing to take on anything uh, that came up. Mind you, misinformation didn't exist prior to 2011. So we didn't have to deal with a lot of that. I didn't have to deal with a lot of that. When, when I was coming up in my gullible stage, it was when people would present ideas and we didn't necessarily vet them out. Sometimes very early in my career, that was something that might just happen because back then hippos had free reign in UX. You know what a hippo is, right? The highest paid person's opinion. So you would get a person who was an exec or a leader who would come in and throw their weight around and their mindset was that because they're in charge, if they suggested it, you had to do it. And, and frankly, a lot of us in the early stages, we were prone to listening to them. Not that it was a common practice. We would always ask questions. Is that really what we need to do? And you'd go research it and you try to present data to the contrary. They would still do what they wanted to do. But it wasn't today. We definitely push back. Earlier in our careers, a lot of us, we didn't necessarily push back. And a lot of us, we learned that that's what we had to do. And that, But that's during the evolution of UX. Now it's different. Now people are just coming up with ideas. They present it. A bunch of people go, oh, yeah, why don't we do that? Or, oh, yeah, that sounds great. And a lot of times it's that person who has no experience who says it. And then they get another 100 or 500 or 1,000 people to, to get in their corner. And actually nobody knows for sure that this is something they should be doing. As a matter of fact, it, it's funny how that people don't, like to accept seniors because it's the seniors. We're the ones who learned that you need to push back. We're the ones who have the confidence to do it. We're the ones who've come to the point where we know that it is our responsibility. It's our duty to push back when something comes up that's not legit, when something comes up that violates the principles, the heuristics that we have, have come up in the discipline that we've learned that they work. We've learned that this is the way to go. So, so the, these types of things happen with us. The seniors get it. Uh, again, that's one of the reasons nobody wants to listen to us because they think that we're, you know, stodgy, old, old, uh, just, just upset, grumpy people and don't realize that thing you're trying to do is not going to work or it already existed. You shouldn't be doing that. They don't like hearing us talk about that when in fact, if they did, the discipline would be further along. This is sort of what I want to get at today. I want to unmask two things. I've talked about these before, but again, I'm dedicating this show to these things. Two things that are being done that people have, all they are is rebranded things that already existed and, and, and they're popular. 
in UX today. And they're only popular because people who don't know any better are the ones that are giving these people free course or somebody who's really, and I've said this before, there's a lot of cowardice in UX today. There's a lot of scared people. There's a lot of people that are willing to do anything that allows them to get a pat on the back. They're willing to to do the 30 pieces of silver thing, if you will. They're willing to sell out the discipline as long as they come out on top. They don't care. So I've seen people who've been in the discipline for 20, 25 years who do not take a stand when something is out of order, who are not willing to tell people that they're going in the wrong direction. They're not going to be quick or willing at all to tell somebody if there's a nail in their tire. And that, folks, is unethical. Every discipline, anytime somebody goes the wrong way, one of the reasons that other disciplines thrive is because they have somebody who's willing to say, no, we shouldn't do that. No, we can't go in that direction. No, that's not correct. You have all these hypersensitive people in UX that when you say something, oh, you're being judgy, you know, and never mind the fact that they're being judgy when they say you're being judgy. That's just the most hypocritical thing. This is absolutely ridiculous. Until we as a group, until we collectively, the vast majority of us, start to embrace the ethics of this discipline, we're going to be in a world of trouble. We're going to be in a world of hurt. But at any rate, I'm going on and on about that. Let's talk about those two things and another one where the script has been flipped. So I want to talk about three different things, but they're all from the perspective of, uh, weren't we already doing that? And and I say it's meddlesome because I know that this is going to ruffle some feathers. A lot of what I say ruffles feathers. Do I care? Nope. Because they need to be said. These things need to be said. These things need to be heard. And people need to take a stand. Uh, someone made a, a comment the other day, and I know they didn't mean any harm, and we already sort of talked about this, but somebody said, Darren, you sure do love drama. No, I don't. I hate drama. I'm just willing to say what needs to be said. I'm not one of those cowards. So whether I'm on my, and I'm not hiding behind my, my podcast microphone either. I'll say it to your face if it needs to be said. And I have said it to people's faces, different things that I say. I don't conceal it. And do like the trolls who like to hide behind things. And then when they see you, they just go in a corner and they sit and they hide. <laughs> and then they don't like to say anything. These types of things are hurting us, folks. And, and, and I'm glad for, I've given a shout out to some folks recently too on social media. Folks who are willing to take a stand. Folks who are willing to say what needs to be said. Folks who are willing to say, it's raining, get an umbrella. You know I mean? Little, little simple things that we should be embracing. Let's have the courage. To do that today. But anyway, let, let, let's hit these topics. Topic number one is design thinking. I shared a post on social media. And in this post, someone had talked about what we need to do with design thinking. They were, they were really touting design thinking. And I'm going, wow, really? And, and, and you looked and, and the person, I don't remember how much experience the person had or anything like that. But it was just sad. And so I just borrowed the the graphic they used. I shared it. And, and I want to talk about this based on the these different premises. Because there's like 500 different models of design thinking. That's fine. They can do what they want. In general, I really don't care. I'm not touching it. I'm not dealing with it. I'm not going that route. Don't need to. I know that it's, it's not legit. Never has been legit. Idio knew 
that it wasn't legit. They were just trying to come up with something they could bill people for. That's part of the history of design thinking that people don't necessarily share. What I want to point out is when, when design thinking hit mainstream and started being introduced, Stanford is partly responsible for this too, Stanford University. They're partly responsible for this. They basically took processes, activities that we were already doing. Yes, we were already doing that, but it wasn't called design thinking. And this model I have in front of me, the one that I shared in the post, it talks about the the five steps in design thinking. It talked about discover, define, ideate, prototype, and test. It talks about collecting feedback in between each phase. It talked about iterating along the along the journey. Uh, we were already doing this. We were already doing this in 1995. We were already doing this in 2000. We were already doing this in 2005. We were already doing this in 2010. Why do people feel the need to take something that already exists call it by a different name, then they overexpose this so-called new idea to people who don't have the history because they can't get away with this, presenting this to people who already know. So they always go to people who don't know any better. It sounds good to them. I mean, a bike looks good to somebody who's never seen a car or never seen a vehicle at all. And, And because It's an improvement over what they were doing before. They think it's the best thing since sliced bread. But the truth be told is that somebody is not telling them that there's this is already being done. It's already being done better. Why would you take the time to deceive people into thinking that a rebranded methodology is new? But, you know, there's a lot of people I talk about baby bird syndrome. A lot, a lot of people have baby bird syndrome. They they'll eat anything. Their 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 eyes are are wide shut and their mouth is wide open, is the way I like to say it. And, and as long as somebody drops something in there, they'll they'll embrace it. Never mind what already exists. Never mind what got stepped on. Never mind what got what got disavowed. They just embrace that thing. It, it's actually a, a type of 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 anchoring bias in that. People hear something and they think that it's true because that's the first thing they heard. And so they embrace it. And a lot of people today that fight against a lot of aspects of user experience do so because they have no knowledge of the history of UX. They have no knowledge of people like Alan Cooper and and Richard Saul Worman and, 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 and Susan Weinshank and the things that these kinds of people would present before a lot of this stuff started rearing its ugly head. In, in the in the halls of, of UX, so to speak. These things, folks, l- listen to this. This is wild. In this illustration, they mention, again, discover, define, ideate, prototype, and test. Can't remember if I did all five. I think I did. Discover, define, ideate, prototype, and test. In discover, you learn about the user. In define, you determine the features according to them. In ideate, you brainstorm solutions. With prototyping, you simulate user experience. A- a- at the test phase, you validate with users. Weren't we already doing that? Yes. Yes, we were. We were already doing that. So nobody, there's, there's nothing new here. 
And, and folks, in this particular illustration, it gets worse. Not only is this a, a, a Kool-Aid-oriented presentation, not only is this an act of, of professional gaslighting when somebody presents this as if it's new, as if they're, they're shedding light on something, but when you look at this particular illustration, and I've seen several illustrations where, where what I'm about to mention is being done, they have activities listed under each one of the five phases. Man, talk about weren't we already doing that? When you look at what's under each of these five phases, that's where it really it becomes downright laughable. Under Discover, they said user interviews, stakeholder interviews. I've just mentioned some. Surveys, data analysis, metrics, competitors. Competitors? Don't you mean competitive analysis? And I'm, I'm, I'm being anal <laughs> by, by, by calling that out. But, you know, if you're going to do it, at least try to do it right. Uh, competitive analysis. Focus groups. Really? Folks, focus groups is a marketing thing. We use it sometime in UX. It's not the tool of choice. It's not the method of choice. Focus groups pretty much belong to the marketing folks. Uh, stop trying to bring it into UX if you want to do what's right. Observation. That's hilarious. Observation. They didn't say contextual analysis. They didn't mention ethnography. They didn't mention anything like that. Uh, they just said observation. That, that, wow, man. Talk about lazy. Anyway, clustering insights. Really? You're gonna, uh, context mapping. And then customer journey maps. And then it's funny, and I got to mention this now. They mentioned customer journey maps. Is that part of discovery? Yeah. But my point is, remember, weren't we already doing this? Under ideate, they list user journeys. What's the difference between a user journey and a customer journey map? Nothing. Nothing. So why are they under two different parts of the journey? Can they happen? You can elaborate, but why are you putting them under two? Anyway, is this just to show you some of the the people who are newer to the discipline, you can roll out, you being whoever, can roll out error in mass. And, and here's what, I love you juniors. I love you. But the truth is, again, you don't until you have a filter, people can pull the wool over your eyes in a heartbeat and you wouldn't know. You wouldn't have the slightest idea. And that's what these people bank on. And that's why a lot of them attack seniors. They call us gatekeepers and anything else that the juniors are afraid of. They do the whole UX boogeyman thing because they try to get people to not want to listen to us so that they can maintain their course of, of having that, 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 that grip on people's minds. They, they act just like cult leaders. That's what they do. Underdefined, personas, empathy maps, user journey. There it is again, user journeys. Way. Uh, uh, storyboards, user stories, problem statements. I'm not going to read all of this stuff. Uh, oh, then they have comparative analysis uh, underdefined, but then you have competitors under. This thing is really poorly done. It's it's really shoddy. It, it's it's not really. There's th this thing lacks excellence. I'm not even going to going to bore you with all of these ridiculous things. They they have several several methods and methodologies on this illustration that are correct, incorrectly defined. They are improperly placed, if you will. They, they are, uh, some of these things shouldn't be on here at all. 
you know, like sus. We'll, 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 we'll talk about sus on another episode one day, but sus is terrible. It, it's really terrible. We're going to rip it apart. I've done it before. I'll do it again. Uh, and, and, and just to, to illustrate the point, I, I actually, one place where I worked, someone was, they read about sus and this is what people do. They read about something. They don't have any experience with it. This is the problem. And if you're one of these people, just all you have to do is say, man, I shouldn't do that and stop doing it. That, that, that's all to it. That's all you have to do. This person read an article about sus, decided to, to make themselves the spokesperson for sus in the organization. They came to me to see what I had to say about sus. I ripped sus to shreds, provided them with evidence. Because remember, trolls don't provide evidence. I'm not a troll. Trolls don't provide evidence. They don't show you the right way to go. They just like to sit around and complain and cause a bunch of problems. They don't have any solutions or anything of that sort. I told them the sus isn't going to work. This is why. Not only is this bad, I said, but if you're trying to present this to a leader, a leader can look up sus on Google and, or any search engine for that matter. Forget about Google. Any search engine for that matter. They can look up sus and disprove it. Disprove its validity and trustworthiness with practically no effort whatsoever. And if you put this in front of them and they do that, you're going to be, you're going to look bad. You're going to make the team look bad. You're going to downgrade the UX maturity in this organization because we're not going to be valued. You know what that person did? And this is what people do. And that's why I talk all the time about how um, you want to check your UX maturity as a more junior UXer. Check yourself to see how well you interact with a real uh, senior, not someone who says they're a senior, a real senior. There's a lot of people out there that say they're seniors and they're not. That person who claimed that they had been doing the work for nine years, they hadn't. It was their first UX job. They didn't know the things they were talking about. They wanted to look smart. There's a lot of people who they're basically monetizing looking smart. So they love to look smart. No matter who got, doesn't matter who got hurt. It doesn't matter what was incorrect. There are people who just like to look smart and they're dangerous. They're dangerous for themselves. They're dangerous for their teams. They're dangerous for the discipline. We can't go in that direction, folks. It's not a good thing. So at any rate, that person ignored what I said. Never really, when he got a glimpse of what I was doing, completely shot it down and just ignored me. And so that's a sign that you're not mature, if you can't embrace the truth, if you can't embrace reality, if you can't come face to face with what you're really doing, what it's worth, what its value is, what its potential impact is, if you can't come to grips with that when it's not reflective of what you want to hear, if you're going to drown in that kind of self-imposed confirmation bias, you're putting yourself in a bad position. People like me, we don't hate you. We're not looking for you to fail. We're trying to help you succeed. But if somebody's not honest, we can't do anything else for you. We're not going to coddle you. I'm not going to lie to you. I'm not going to do something to make you feel good. I'm not going to pump you up with toxic positivity. I'm going to tell you what you need. If there's a nail in your tire, I'm going to tell you there's a nail in your tire. If there's a nail in my tire, I want somebody to tell me there's a nail in my tire. You know, And not these people who don't know anything that try to tell you they're a nail in your tire so they can tell you that you have a nail in your tire so they can go back and tell their friends that they told you that there's a nail in your tire, and, but they were wrong the entire time. We're, we're not talking about that, which is also quite quite prevalent today. 
in UX circles. But folks, there's stuff on this illustration that just doesn't work. And, and this is all design thinking and all of the things that are under each of these five different phases. We have been doing them for years. Somebody took it, slapped some new areas on it, grouped them into five stages. And some of you probably already heard my, my talk called design processes are overrated. There's a thin line of separation between every design process. And pretty much it's just different because they use different terminology to identify the different phases or stages in the design. That's pretty much it. But they all do the same thing. But design thinking is the, this is the, the one that everybody likes to think is the big champion. And this is the one that made the, made my eyes come open about design. No, it didn't. And what's worse. Yeah. Design thinking gets worse. They have unskilled people, people who are not designers, people who are not scientists. If you're a UXer, a real UXer, you're a scientist. When they have a person who's not a scientist try to do the design, which is what design thinking licenses people to do, then the work is going to tank because you have removed expertise from the equation. You cannot remove expertise from an equation that demands expertise and then still optimize your work. It can't be done. No matter where you are and what you're doing, it can't be done. And these people, because they achieve some success, they think that's equivalent to success. It's not. It's not. If you've gone five feet further down the road than you were, you went five feet. That's not success. It's just five feet. People are, they think they're successful because they've achieved some degree of profit when actually if they had not ejected the experts from the process, they would have triple, quadruple, or quintupled or sextupled their, their success. But they don't know that because nobody has the perception to realize what the experts brought to the table. When you remove an expert, you're doing it to your own detriment. Not a good idea. So, folks, weren't we already doing that? Uh, yeah, we were. <laughs> we, we were already doing all of these things. And, and it's not until people finally sit down, be honest, and take a look at what design thinking is. And then you got to connect with somebody who was doing the work in 95, in 2000, in 2005. And they realize, you know what? We were already doing all of this and we didn't call it design thinking. And we didn't need to call it design thinking. First, it was referred to the first most popular term was that of actually the first, you know, the first term that was introduced was experience design and people didn't embrace it. That's one of the reasons why Nathan Shetroff book is called Experience Design. That's what it was called first. People didn't embrace it. Then information architecture came on the scene. And information architecture is really only addressing the, the nomenclature, the taxonomy, the information sense, and the findability with some content strategy in there as well and some other piece. And, and, and this I'm going on too long about this, so we're going to have to split this into two episodes. I'll, I'll pick this up next week. But... Information architecture became the dominant job title until about 2007, 2008, 2009, right along in there, UX started coming center stage again. Now, Don Norman's title from the mid-90s did not become commonplace 
until the late 2000s. Then we were called UX designers. Then we were called UX architects. And you know what we did? Everything. That's another thing that's funny. One thing that that they did get generally right with this illustration that I'm looking at is that back there were no specializations prior to 2011, pretty much. You were an, an architect, a UX architect. You did everything. You were a UX designer. You did everything. You were an interaction designer. You did everything. There were very few people who were still called experienced designers. That That is starting to happen a little bit more today. But And a lot of them are just people who are playing with job titles. And they really don't describe what the employee is. Uh, so it's not really that. It's not ethically representing who people are. But still, in this illustration, it shows that we did all the things, or we do all the things, and we did all the things. I had a job interview once, and I'm going to say it, at Facebook, where they thought that I lacked experience because of my job titles, which showed me that nobody who was part of that that interview process had the capability of giving me props for who I was and what I had done. They couldn't even evaluate me properly. They, they thought that I hadn't done anything because I was a UX designer. So they thought I hadn't done any research. They ignored the fact that my that my portfolio contained research <laughs> because they couldn't relate to it. See, that, so the lack of history, the lack of knowledge of history, I should say, it's hurting the discipline. Because frankly, if you don't get real seniors working at your company to help to steer everybody and to keep everybody from making some of these easily made mistakes when people don't have filters and don't have the knowledge of the history and things of that nature, the team suffers, individuals suffer, people got to go elsewhere looking for mentors because you don't have any mentors, the, the people in leadership don't trust your UX operation because nobody knows anything. And when they're in there faking it till they make it, the leaders know folks are faking it. it it's blatantly obvious. I mean, not only do I have almost 28 years of experience, I have 42 years of experience in corporate America. There are people who've been around, in some cases, longer than me. And so there are things that we see. There are things that we know. That's something a lot of people in UX today can't claim. <laughs> they have over 40 years of professional experience in corporate America. So not only do I have the UX chops, I know how business runs. I, I, some of us were talking about a a research repository tool. I won't say who it was, but I said that that I was not really a fan of a particular product because you could tell by the way that they were doing certain things that they had an improper business model. And if a, if somebody has a bad business model, then that means that that will eventually trickle down to the customers. You want to be a customer of someone who understands how to manage and run their business because that's going to translate into longevity and you don't have to worry about finding a new solution when they lose their business in three years. So I I, could, I see the writing on the wall. Did that come from my UX experience? Nope, it didn't. It came from my business acumen. So some people, they just don't have that. So when you don't bring somebody like me into your operation, your operation is going to suffer. You you actually, I'm worth three or four employees in one body, save for other seniors. 
because the knowledge and the acumen we bring is so, so valuable on so many counts. I'm not tooting my horn. I'm talking, there's a lot of people out there who have insights like this. And, and, and I talk to them all the time and they get rejected all the time. And then you look up and you find out who they hired. They hire somebody with a tenth of the person's experience that they rejected. The business is going to suffer. So let's remember that today. Make sense? I certainly hope so. So when you hear all these things, discover, define, ideate, prototype, test. Uh, were we already doing that? Yeah, we were. So why do we need to call it something else? We didn't, but somebody who stood to make a buck did. And, and this is happening far too often in UX today. And I'm going to call it out. I'm going to hold people accountable. I'm going to hope that somebody will listen, that they will join me in holding people accountable and join me in this anti-Kool-Aid campaign, which is basically what this is. Folks got to stop drinking the Kool-Aid. Their, their behavior is no different than people who go into cults, frankly. And somebody might not like that, but it's true. So, you know, we can't, we can't believe everything that everybody says. We can't embrace everything that everybody says. And, and the more you know history, the history of UX, uh, the better equipped you are to be able to validate and understand the, the, the authenticity of the track that you're on. I mean, when you, when you know this stuff, you, you stop doing boot camps. When you know, you don't even go to a boot camp. When you, when you know this stuff, you don't sign up for the Google UX program. When, when you do this stuff, and I mean, I, I only know, man, I, I venture to say I don't know a boot camp that really has any ethics at all. Some people use the word boot camp and it's not. Everybody under the sound of my voice, you're thinking about going to a boot camp, put your money back in your pocket, go to eCornell. It's better. At least it's, it's it's being offered from an accredited institution and it's not going to cost you eight, nine, ten thousand dollars $10,000. And they won't do like some companies and, and want to start taking money out of your paycheck after you get a job. That kind of ridiculous stuff. They're predatory. They don't really want to help you. They only want to make money. Folks, <laughs> and even with the boot camps, when it comes to education, weren't we already doing that? There, there are ways to accomplish what they claim they're going to do for you, and you only have to spend a fraction of the money. So keep your money in your pocket. You can buy a lot of Happy Meals with that. So <laughs> at any rate, folks, we're going to, again, we're going to split this up. I, I can't do this all now, so we'll, we'll share some of the other segments. We might even throw some other segments in here, uh, but we'll continue this segment of UX Potpourri next week. Until then, it's time to sign off. So this is Darren Hood, the host of The World of UX. Happy UX again, everybody. Thanks for joining us for this session of CX of M Radio. Be sure to rate, review, and subscribe to the show and visit cxofm.org for more resources.